Right, you're ready? Ready. Let's do this. Charles Darwin. Heard of him? What a guy. (laughs) (laughs) So Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, kind of a big deal in the life sciences. You know, just a little known theory, a little known man. Yeah. Well, today we're going to deal with a similar big deal, but for the earth sciences. Okay. Right. Um, This idea, just like Darwin's, causes what we sometimes call a paradigm shift, which is a complete change in the way that we see the world, in the way that we understand it, in the way that we explain it. But this idea, this big idea with a capital B and a capital I, uh, was ignored for 50 years. Buried, one might say. Hey, well played. (laughs) Well played. From the off. We're talking about the earth sciences. This is the story of a lone genius who solves a puzzle. It's a story that has been told a lot. There are books on it. There are countless magazine articles, features on it. And I'm going to tell you that same story now. But... As we know, this podcast, we question these stories, yes? Always. You said lone genius, and I was like, uh, why is he the... <laughs> um, You know, what do we do? We investigate them. We interrogate them. We quite often end up rewriting them, Yeah, essentially. And that is part. what we shall do today. Oh, I'm so excited. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising, yet brilliant, discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote, and for this episode, I am the storyteller, so Marin knows nothing of what is to come. I'm in the dark. I mentioned that this idea is said to be as big a deal for Earth sciences as Darwin's theory of evolution is to the life sciences. Like you said, capital B, capital I, big idea. How is your Earth sciences? Ooh, you know, okay. So I took geology, I took paleontology. Both of those were quite a while ago. I think it's fascinating. How much of it has stayed in my brain Mm. remains up for debate. Yeah, so we both talk about a whole range of science topics, both on this podcast and our other work on YouTube and, and and TV and stuff, but your main bag is microbiology. Yeah, yeah. a far cry from... From geology. A little um, bit, yeah. Mine is more physics and chemistry, some physiology too. Um, I've not done much in earth sciences. I mean, I did once go volcano chasing in Japan. Okay, casual. Which was super cool. That sounds awesome. Um, but earth sciences is much more than just volcanoes. So we're both digging into something God. that's unfamiliar, would you say? Sorry, I'm on fire with the puns today. <laughs> this is a role reversal. What's going on? Someone call my agent. Um, so yeah, earth sciences, it turns out after doing lots of and lots of research for this story, super interesting, fascinating. mega fascinating. As the name suggests, earth sciences are the sciences that look at the earth. We love a clear, straightforward kind of name. Yeah, It includes fields like geology, which is all about the rocks, atmospheric science, geochemistry, ecology, which looks at the life on earth, oceanography, glaciology, so many ologies. So many. The story that we're going to be scrutinising today covers a whole load of these, mainly deals though with what's going on below our feet and what shaped and what shapes our planet. Okay. Let me introduce you first to the couple of experts that you're going to hear during this episode. Uh, the first is Professor Naomi Oreskes. I'm Professor of the History of Science and Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University. And I study the development of scientific knowledge, particularly in the earth and environmental sciences. Ooh. Couldn't be more perfect. We love right? the development of scientific knowledge here. Such an interesting, fantastic chat with Naomi. She's written some superb books. Uh, she's also edited one on this very story, which was very, very helpful. Plus, she's got a book coming out that sheds new light on the final part of this story as well. More about that soon. 
And here is my second expert. My name is Kurt Stüve, and I'm a professor for geology at Graz University in Austria. Which, as we'll find out, is the university where the lone genius of this story spends the last 10 years of his life. In fact, in an office that Kurt can see from his. What? Okay, I love these connections to the modern day, to the historical. Love it, love it, love it. I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, This is quite a complicated story to untangle. Uh, it hurt my brain. It took, <laughs> it took quite a long time. Um, I think I found a way through it. And I'm hoping that you're going to be as captivated and possibly even as mind blown as I've been by these ideas. I can pretty much guarantee it. I'm with you on the journey, Greg. And what I love is it's essentially a puzzle. Well, a series of puzzles that need to be solved. And by the way, I'm aware I haven't told you who this guy is that I keep talking about or what the big idea is yet, but bear with me. I'm on the edge of my seat. Because I thought it'd be more fun to present the puzzles to you and then take you through the theories as they developed. I love a brain teaser. Okay, I'm so ready. We're going to start in the middle of the 19th century with a British naturalist called Edward Forbes. Now, he was a pioneer in biogeography, the first of many new specialisms that uh, I wasn't really aware of. Easy to guess what this one is, right? But if you're a nerd like me and you want to look at the etymology, yeah, the origin of the word, bio is from the Greek bios for life. Geography is from Latin, geo for earth, graphia for description. Mm. So I reckon, therefore, biogeography is a description of where the life is on earth. Yeah, I'm with you so far. That makes sense. Now... Just like his contemporary, Charles Darwin, our Edward Forbes, he's looking at the life that he's finding on islands. And he's particularly interested in the plants that he sees over the British Isles and how they relate to those on mainland Europe. So he notices that the plants in the southwest of Ireland Mm. are similar to those in northern Spain and that those in the southeast of Ireland are like those in the southwest of England and in France. Wow. If you, yeah, if definitely if you had told me that there's flora in Ireland that's similar to Spain's, that's confusing. Okay, interesting. This is the first puzzle. How come there are these same plants found hundreds of kilometers, hundreds of miles away from each other, separated by a strip of ocean? Edward Forbes comes to the conclusion, this is in uh, 1846, that these plants have migrated interesting like got on little boats and went down to spain (laughs) (laughs) they extended their little planty legs and like the wildebeest they went for a wonder love Um, no so right they haven't migrated across the sea okay because yeah i mean i guess seeds could float but no and he says that during the last ice age the water in the english channel dropped and that exposed land that linked the islands in the Atlantic together to the mainland, and the plants could then migrate across in the sense that their seeds could spread and then grow and then spread more seeds and grow. Sure, animals are carrying them across, pooping them out, whatever. Exactly. Charles Darwin refers to Edward Forbes a number of times in his Origin of Species. Some of Forbes' ideas he agrees with Mm. and he gives him credit for, but this one, this idea of islands and continents being connected and species migrating across. Not one he's a fan of, but I thought it'd be cool if you read a bit of it. Yes, please. Okay, so this is from Darwin's On the Origin of Species. Edward Forbes insisted that all the islands in the Atlantic must recently have been connected with Europe or Africa. If, indeed, the arguments used by Forbes are to be trusted, it must be admitted that scarcely a single island exists which has not recently been united to some continent. This view cuts the Gordian knot of the dispersal of the same species to the most distant points and removes many a difficulty. But, to the best of my judgment, we are not authorized in admitting such enormous geographical changes within the period of existing species. 
That's really interesting. So Darwin's basically saying, like, this would be a great explanation. Yeah. This really works. However, I do not think we have. Yeah, like, I don't buy it. (laughs) So second part of this puzzle now, it's not just the flora, as you say, right? It's not just the plant species being found hundreds of kilometers apart. It's the fauna, too, the animals. Well, specifically, the fossils of the same animals being found thousands of kilometers apart. I knew we were going to get into fossils. I'm so excited. I love fossils. Okay, cool. Yeah, we loved our Marianne episode in, in season one. Yeah, right. So let me show you uh, some artist reconstructions of some of these fossils. Oh God, I love these so much. It's like the taxidermied animals that the artist has never seen the original of. And yeah. So they end up really messed up. There's the first one. This is Sinognathus, which translates to dog jaw. Yeah, I can see where it's getting its name. It, you know, it looks like a cross between a dog, a capybara, and a lizard. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> So he lived in the Middle Triassic period. Uh, He's just over a metre long. His fossils are found on both sides of the Atlantic, but people didn't think he could swim. So how did that get there? All right, here's another one. Here's another one. Hang on. Oh, my God. Okay, this is definitely like a walrus (laughs) hippo. This is the Lystrosaurus, which translates to shovel reptile. Oh, my God, that's so funny. I was going to say walrus hippo. Pug? It's like got a really interesting face. It's kind of got the shape of a shovel as a face. Yes, it does. Sorry, mate, but it has. It's got these like ridges, something a bit pig-like about it. Yeah. Fossils of the Lystrosaurus are found in Antarctica, India, China, Mongolia, European Russia, and South Africa. What the frick? Did he have a plane? Like, how did he get all the different places? I can see how this is becoming a question. And here's the last one for you. Here's a pick. Okay, plants. So plants of fossils also. This yes. is a, this looks like a tree to me. Yeah, so this is actually a giant fern that what? could stand up to 30 metres tall. What? Yeah, it's called the Glossop Terrace. The ferns are a good one. That's Professor Naomi Oreskes. These distinctive Glossopterus ferns were found in England, but they were also found in India. In fact, they were found in many parts of the British Empire. So British Empire geologists who had travelled to India or Australia had seen these same fern fossils tens of thousands of kilometers apart. So again, maybe the seeds floated, right? Sure. No. Um, It's thought (laughs) that they were too big and too bulky for that. So how do you explain these fossils? Well, enter into the story Edward Zeus. In 1885, Edward publishes a textbook. It's called, and forgive my German, Des Antlers der Erde. That sounds great. The Face of the Earth. Um, Based on the distribution of the Glossopteris fern fossils, he suggests actually kind of as Edward Forbes did before him, he suggests that the ocean has risen and sunk repeatedly through geological time and that a long time ago, South America, Africa and India were all linked in a supercontinent which he named Gondwanaland. Okay, I've heard of this. I've heard of this. This is coming back to me. I'm I'm here with you. Yeah. So then... Similarly, again, to uh, Edward Forbes, he suggested that as the sea level rose and fell, it exposed a series of land bridges Mm. that linked them. I'm not actually sure who came up with that term land bridges, by the way, dug into it. Edward Zeus is often credited with it in this textbook. Um, some say it was a French-Swiss geologist called uh, Jules Marcoux uh, who explored it, some kind of similar things in a letter in 1860. Some people even say it was Edward Forbes, like a decade or so before. Yeah. Whatever. Anyway, the idea is that these land bridges connect 
islands. They, they connect even mainlands together and that they were then later submerged or sunk. And in fact, the other name for this theory is the theory of the sunken continents. Oh, man. It, is, it sounds like an Indiana Jones uh, movie, it does. right? The idea was that the Earth as a whole had all been connected in the beginning. That it had been one giant continent that had covered the whole surface of the earth, but that the earth had cooled over time during the course of geological history. And that as it cooled, it had shrunk. And when it shrunk, it shriveled. So the analogy that was sometimes used was the analogy of an apple that is left out on a table and dries. And if apple shrivels, the the skin of the apple gets crumpled. Or as we get old and we dry up, our skin wrinkles, right? So the idea was that the earth had shrunk and these wrinkles had caused some parts of the crust to move up and others to move down. And the parts that moved down became the ocean basins. And those were the sunken continents. Wait, that is so funny. Like the earth is just a giant raisin. (laughs) (laughs) So I've got a sketch here of these proposed land bridges that could have been exposed and connected these kind of big lumps of land that we see today uh, together. Here it is. Okay, so this looks like a really wonky map of the world. What am I, it kind of looks like it's melting. Yeah, so kind of the thin lines there yeah. are, you can see the normal outline of, of the world that we know now. Yep. Right, that's all there. But then there are some other patches drawn on top and they're called things like Arch Hellenis and Arch Atlantis and Arch Inotia. Arch Africa. And those are the land bridges. So so that Arch Hellenis looks like it connects South America with Africa. And that Arch Atlantis connects Spain to Florida. Okay, okay. So these parts that we're seeing, the arch-labeled bits, are essentially the artist's rendering of what they think may have been the bits of the earth sticking up. So places on the earth where plants or animals may have been able to travel from the continent wrinkles. to... Ca- right. I'm pretty certain this is kind of a later reconstruction of what people had drawn and scribbled and where they thought the land bridges were. I mean, I am fascinated by it. Totally. And I kind of thought it was rather unlikely. However, I did actually find evidence of a land bridge still visible today. It's called Adams Bridge, also known as Rama's Bridge. It's a limestone ridge just shy of 50 kilometres long, so 30 miles long. It's off the southeast coast of Tamil Nadu in India. It connects down to the northwest coast of Sri Lanka. And I've got a satellite picture of it here for you. If you had shown this to me without explaining it to me, I definitely would have thought this is like a human-made bridge. It's Mm. this incredibly thin, tiny thread of land connecting Mm -hmm. what I'm guessing is India on top and Sri Lanka on the bottom. Yeah, that's right, yeah. So it's only uh, one meter below the surface, apparently. It reportedly was passable on foot until the 15th century when storms kind of deepened the channel Okay. uh, made of limestone. So I was like, well, that's pretty cool. So a land bridge physically could be a thing. Right. Right, apparently there's... This one, I'm like, this is wicked. However, I didn't find any evidence for them on a scale of that sketch. Right. Or because the earth contracted like a shriveled apple. Like I'm at the cause here. The mechanism of the land bridge formation is what I'm hung up on here. However, in the 1800s, this is the idea that everyone is on board with. Okay. This idea of huge land masses, our continents, being where they've always been but being connected by land bridges that then sunk or was submerged 
it quickly spread. It became, yeah, the go-to theory to explain those puzzles of the, the, the plants and the fossils. So everybody's on the land bridge hype train and they're buying into this idea that all of the continents are where they are and always have been fixed in place, just connected by land bridges that sort of submerge and re-emerge over time. Yep. But that's not what I was taught in school. Like, that's not the geology that I learned. I never learned about land bridges. Uh I don't know if this matches what you were taught, but I was taught that in the beginning, all the continents were like smooshed together into one big uh, like tectonic plate cookie, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then got like broken up over time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we were taught, and this is the kind of prevailing wisdom right now, yeah? The truth, some could say, but Mm. more about that. Um, That the continents aren't fixed. The continents move sliding around and that is actually the idea that our lone genius is about to come along and suggest no we're about to we're we're finally going to meet him flying in the face of of the current wisdom of land bridges but his idea is ignored for 50 years in favor of land bridges if that story of him being ignored is really the way it went down which we're going to look into after the break Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of a big idea that rewrote our understanding of what goes on below our feet. And it's time to introduce the main protagonist of our story, Alfred Wegener. Born in Germany in 1880, uh, Alfred has a brother, Kurt, who he gets up to all sorts of things with as a kid. Uh, Alfred is top of his class. He goes on to study physics, meteorology and astronomy at three universities, Berlin, Heidelberg and Innsbruck, right? And we're going to join him in 1910. He's teaching at the University of Marburg in Germany. Oh, I love... Sorry, we don't have to put this in, but I just know Marburg because it's where Marburg virus was discovered. Oh, hello. <laughs> Microbiology. Really important virus. <laughs> Sorry, continue. Sadly, I'm going to have to skirt over a lot of Alfred's amazing adventures, such as him and his brother pioneering the use of weather balloons for high-altitude surveys. Oh, cool. In fact, they set a record for the longest continuous balloon flight. I think it was in 1906. And something I'd love to get into, but it takes us away from our main story a bit. I'm so sorry. Um, Alfred's expeditions to Greenland. Oh my gosh, this is so cool. I love all the side stories that we get to go on with this podcast. The first is 1906, same year as those um, balloon flights. Uh, He builds the first weather station in Greenland. (gasps) And he becomes the first scientist to use kites and tethered weather balloons to study the polar atmosphere. Super cool. That is very cool. But yes, we're going to join him in 1910 uh, when he's lecturing on all those subjects that he's into. Meteorology, applied astronomy, (laughs) cosmic physics. Just a couple. He's clearly really good at picking up new and complex topics and then explaining them in simple ways. In fact, here's something a physics professor at Marburg, Hans Berndorf, wrote about him. With what ease he found his way through the most complicated work of the theoreticians. With what feeling for the important point. He would often, after a long pause for reflection, say, I believe such and such. And most times he was right as we would establish several days later after rigorous analysis. And one thing he starts doing just that with is this theory of land bridges or sunken continents. Wegener does two critical things. One is a kind of synthesis of the geological literature, which includes the paleoclimate evidence, the stratigraphic evidence, and the paleontological evidence. And he says, we know we need some kind of theory to explain this, but the existing theory of sunken continents cannot work. I'm not going to go into why he thinks it doesn't work. Okay. I mean, if you're interested in this, check out isostasy and uh, phenoscandian uplift. Uh. Not going to try to explain them. 
Great words. What is important, though, is what he suggests we should replace the theory of sunken continents and land bridges with. It all starts in 1910. During his Marburg days, he had a school atlas got into his hands and he started discovering this possibility that the African and South American coastlines match very well. So he's literally putting the puzzle pieces together. Like he's matching coastlines like a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah. I know. I'm not sure if you've thought this before, probably as a kid, right? That the shape of the east coast of South America seems to fit really neatly into the shape of the west coast of Africa. 100%. They look like they fit just, they just slot into each other perfectly. Uh Yeah. So Alfred Wegener gets this idea. He heads to the university library. He starts reading everything, researching more and more and more, and he spots something else. What Wegener did was he didn't just notice the jigsaw puzzle fit. He also connected it to a number of important lines of scientific investigation. So he did a very thorough literature review and showed that it wasn't just that South America and Africa fit together, but that if you looked at the rocks and the fossils across that divide, they were the same. Not just in terms of the shape of the continents, but also in terms of the contents of the rocks, the character of the rocks, and the fossil contents. This is the fourth puzzle, right? The third one is the kind of match of the shapes. Mm -hmm. The fourth is it's not just the shape, it's also their terrains and the fossils that you see in them. So terrains first, right? There's quite distinctive layers in the Karoo rock outcrops of South Africa that appear identical to those in the Santa Catarina system in Brazil. Oh, so cool. The Appalachian Mountains of North America have very similar geology to the Scottish Highlands. Amazing. So he's taking the same data, the same thoughts that Forbes did, right? We're matching fossils, we're matching some kinds of organisms, but he's coming to different conclusions. Yeah, exactly. And not only the Appalachian Mountains of North America being similar to the Scottish Highlands, they're also similar, as Naomi describes, to what you see in Sweden too. I remember when I was a child, around 13 years old, my best friend's mother was Swedish and they moved back to Scandinavia and I had the opportunity to go visit with them. And Ulrika's mother said to me, I always find it so amazing that the mountains here feel and look the same as the mountains in Maine and New Hampshire. And I said, well, that's because they are. (laughs) So I was only 13, but I knew this. And I was explaining to her how Europe and North America had previously been connected, that the Appalachians run, you know, essentially through Northern Scotland and into Scandinavia. That's the same mountain belt and they look the same because in fact, they are the same. Oh my God, I love this picture of 13-year-old Naomi being like, yes, (laughs) yes, it's because they are. So Alfred Wegener starts cutting up maps of the continents from atlases and he tries to stretch them to kind of put these similar features next to each other. And he's putting these similar fossils next to each other as well. And what he hits on is a realisation. A completely new idea that goes against the status quo, right? Alfred Wegener realises that the continents were once joined, but not in their current position with land bridges. They were once actually in a different position. They were clumped together. They were connected and then they split apart. Wegener's answer to this is to say everyone's been thinking that the continents are moving vertically, but we could solve all of our problems if instead of thinking about the continents moving vertically, we thought about them moving horizontally. And that's where he comes up with the idea of horizontal continental displacement. Interesting. I've definitely heard it continental drift, Yes, that's kind of what it becomes known as. Yeah. So the idea of land bridges and the theory of sunken continents is about land moving up and down vertically, being exposed, submerged. Alfred Wegener's idea is about land moving across the planet, kind of side to side, horizontally. And he actually says, a conviction of the fundamental soundness of the idea took root in my mind. 
I love old-timey scientist descriptions of the way they come up with stuff. It makes me so happy. It's very committed. I also can't even imagine how weird this would sound to somebody at the time, right? Because this presupposes the idea that the continents are sliding around on something. Right, yes. And that they're like on top of something. Yeah, how the heck are they moving? Right. I've not thought of that before. In 1912, he presents this idea of continental displacement at a lecture, uh, and he publishes three articles on it as well. He published a paper with the title On the Origin of the Continents of the Ocean, and at the title, there's a little asterisk, there's a footnote on the first page of this little paper, and in the footnote, it says, I'm on the jump to an expedition to Greenland for the next two years, and therefore, I publish my ideas only quickly in the short paper, and I will publish them properly in book form when I return. So this is, of course, a classic no-no that we do in science, that we quickly shoot out an abstract to stake our territory <laughs> and then allude to that in more peace when we have time. So very obviously, Alfred Wegener staked some territory there in 1912 and then only published the book in 1914-15. Yeah, the book was published in 1915. It's called The Origin of Continents and Oceans. And this idea of continental displacement, or yes, continental drift, as it became known, um, kind of sounds more familiar to us Definitely. than land bridges. And it's this idea that there are big chunks of land, our continents, that are drifting and moving. It evolves into plate tectonics. Okay. That's the idea we're taught at school, um, of these big plates moving, albeit very slowly very slowly across the surface of the planet although we can sometimes feel their effects in earthquakes when they rub up against each other volcanoes yeah yeah yeah, yeah. check this out okay alfred drew this sketch of this supercontinent where you know where all these continents are clumped together before they start to drift apart and in the corner of this sketch he scribbles something Okay, so this is German. Please pardon my pronunciation. Shall I ask our producer to pronounce it who speaks German? Please do. Okay. Katie Oh, thank God we have thank a native German speaker. <laughs> thank you, Katie. <laughs> Which I'm seeing here translates to pull over the bridges. And yes. there is an exclamation point at the end. Alfiedersein land bridges. <laughs> so the story goes, Wegener presents his idea and it doesn't go down very well. In fact, it's ignored for 50 years. Goes down like a lead weather balloon. One might say. Sorry. Sorry, I'm on a roll. That was a strong coffee you had just before we yeah, started. True. This is awesome. I think it's awesome. Other people are going to be like, too many puns. <laughs> and like, never. So we are going to see whether this was indeed the case, right? Did he get ignored for 50 years? Um, but first, I want to pause and I want to interrogate this first chapter that we've got up to. So I said that he spotted that geological fit, as it's known, uh, the east coast of South America and the west coast of Africa. And he spotted that himself in 1910. Mm. He wasn't the first to notice that. I knew it. I mean, of course, right? Of course, as we often find in this podcast, but also it's the sort of thing we spotted as a kid. Yeah. Big time. So I found it pretty cool when I discovered that Francis Bacon commented on this similarity in the shapes of the old and the new world in 1620. What? That's 300 years. I didn't even Bacon? know. Like, God, maybe this is just betraying my lack of knowledge around the history of geology. I had no idea we even knew the shape of the continents in the 1600s. Mm. I should say Francis Bacon um, is the chap that's often credited with developing the scientific method in the 17th century. He's like classic Renaissance scientific enlightenment dude. Some amazing paintings of him. Um, some people have suggested, though, actually, that 
Francis Bacon was more just looking at the shapes. He didn't take it that one step further. No, he, it's like he was talking about it when he was talking about parallel patterns in nature. So he was saying how trees' roots are similar to trees' branches. Mm. And so he's just interested in the shapes, not necessarily saying anything more than just that. Just noticing a trend, not attributing causality. Right. But by the late 18th century, turn of the 19th century, a hundred years before Alfred Wegener, more and more thinkers were using this geological fit as a starting point to suggest that these big lumps of land perhaps had once been together. (laughs) People such as Alexander von Humboldt, who in 1800 suggests that lands bordering the Atlantic Ocean had once been joined. I love Humboldt so much. I was going to ask you if you were going to bring him up. He is amazing. We have to do an episode on him. He's incredible. I think he's fascinating. What a guy. Is he the Humboldt penguin is named after? Yes, and the Humboldt squid. Oh, yeah? And Humboldt in Northern California, like the county. He's such a cool dude. Okay, let's bank him for a potential season three. (laughs) I'm so glad he's getting credit in this story, though, because I knew he was one of the great minds behind this. Mm -hmm. So he suggests maybe we're all lumped together. He also suggests a mechanism. He says that they likely broke apart thanks to a massive volcanic eruption and earthquakes. Okay, so he's starting to look to the earth Mm -hmm. for that. But we can actually track this idea possibly back even further. Now, the man credited with the first modern atlas is Abraham Ortelius. 1570, he publishes the Theatrum Orbis Terrorum, the theatre of the world. Have a look at this. Again, great name. Oh my gosh. It's like, I mean, remarkably accurate for a map of the world in the 1500s. Yeah, like the shapes are kind of right. Yeah. I Um, had no idea we had this understanding. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, I want to quote a bit of Ortelius to you. um, And he's actually talking about what Plato thought using his own language, I guess, right? So he says that Plato suggested that the Americas were, quote, torn away from Europe and Africa by earthquakes and floods. The vestiges of the rupture reveal themselves if someone brings forward a map of the world and considers carefully the coasts of the three continents. That is utterly wild that someone in Plato's day and age may have had an understanding that the continents were all one and had been broken up by stuff. What? So, no. Alfred Wegener was not the first person to realise the geological fit. Um, not or, our sudden light bulb moment, no. lone genius. Or okay, indeed for the first person to kind of like, oh yeah, they match, so those continents must have actually once been clumped together. That had been going on for quite a while. Quite a while. So was he the first to notice those matching rock patterns and that distribution of fossils, you know, cut it, cut up the maps, put it together? Was he the first... Okay, there are a couple of guys I need to introduce you to here. First of all, 50 years before Wegener, you've got Antonio Snyder Pellegrini, a French geographer and scientist. He publishes La Création et ses Mysteries de Voile. Mm. <laughs> the Creation and Its Mysteries Unveiled. Excellent. Uh, and he writes about the continuity of rock formations in Africa and South America, and he concludes that the continents were once connected together. He even puts a date on it. He suggests it was during the Pennsylvanian period, which Google tells me is around 300 million years ago. Incredible. So hang on. You've got Alexander von Humboldt, 50 or 60 years before him. You've got Plato, potentially 2,000 years-ish before him. Uh, You've got Antonio Snyder-Pellegrini suggesting that the supercontinent broke apart. Yep. And he also gives a mechanism. He says there was a single violent expansion of the Mm. Earth's crust caused by the eruption of a volcano. There's another guy oh my called uh, Roberto Mantovani. And I just want to mention him because he actually writes to Alfred Wegener. This is after <sighs> Wegener publishes his theory of continental displacement. Drama. And he basically says, excuse me, sir, I suggested this before you. Here you go, let, let me um, dig the letter out. Wait, yes, please. Guy, I love scientific shade. 
So Roberto Montovani is writing to Alfred Wegener, and he's saying, From my observations, I had noted that all the continents and islands must have made up a single block in the far distant past. And Roberto Montovani um, suggests that it happened as the gas in the Earth's core expanded and the outside stretched, which led to the continents kind of stretching and moving apart. Okay, so we're getting all of these different ideas. Same idea at the core, but different ideas as to how it might have happened. Yes, exactly, yeah. Wegener writes back Uh, to uh, Montavani and basically says, cheers, thanks. Uh, That expansion thing, interesting. Don't think our solid Earth could actually do it, though. Um, There's one last guy. I I need to mention this one last guy. Uh, I don't like listing names, but hopefully, you know, they're kind of fun. Um, This is Frank Bursley-Taylor. These are great. Okay. This is four years before Wegener, before Wegener does his first lecture on this, essentially. And Frank Bursley-Taylor writes to a fellow geologist with his idea of continental crust movements. Sounds familiar. Similar. In fact, some years later, Taylor actually writes, quote, The theory of continental drift has been commonly referred to as the Taylor-Wegener hypothesis. Since the views of the authors differ in several respects, and the first named author's paper, the earliest of Wegener's published work, it seems best to discontinue this hyphenated relation. So this is Taylor being like, okay, say goodbye to Wegener. I'm the only one who should have my name on this idea. And they do drop a name. But it's not Wegener's. What a bummer for Taylor. (laughs) So, Marin, was Alfred Wegener a lone genius? Okay, he may have been a genius. He may have been lonely. But (laughs) he was not the only one to come up with this idea, and certainly not the first. Frankly, as much as I love and admire Alfred Wegener as a universal genius, it's not his idea because it had been around for 50 years. Naomi had something to say on this as well. I definitely agree that it's not one lone genius. And in fact, Wegener's work was really a synthetic work in which he read very, very extensively in stratigraphy, in paleontology. He himself was a meteorologist who was very interested in paleoclimates. His father-in-law was one of the world's most famous paleoclimatologists. So he's not doing this work in isolation. But no one until Wegener really developed a scientific theory of it. People have gone back and found these other people who seem like precursors. And that's fine. You know, those were good guys and they were trying to do good work, but their theories didn't hold up in the way that Wegener's theory ultimately did. Yes, that's totally fair. I'm kind of with Naomi on this one because it sounds like he had expertise in so many different areas and he was so good at putting them all together. And he was the one who comes up with, I'm guessing, the most correct underlying idea for why this is occurring. Right. Well, let's have a look at that, shall we? So Taylor and Mantovani, they were suggesting different mechanisms, okay? So Mantovani, as I said, is all about this slow expansion of the planet. Taylor, however, thinks that when the moon was captured by the Earth, it created a force on the planet which increased the Earth's speed of rotation, and that, like flung the continents away from the poles towards the equator. Like centrifugal force? Is that what that's called? (laughs) My favourite of the fake forces. (laughs) So what did Wegener suggest in 1912 and then like expand upon in 1915? Well, the classic Wegener lone genius story suggests that he didn't actually present a mechanism for how the continents drifted and that is why he was ignored for 50 years. And this is the story that is published in lots of books and in lots of science magazine features. But after chatting to Naomi, it appears that the reality is quite different. And it's one that's influenced in a big way by war and by secrecy. And that's coming up after the break. Oh, I'm so excited.
Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the story of the birth of the idea of continental displacement or continental drift, something that will eventually evolve into the idea of plate tectonics. That thing we're all taught at school to explain not only what's under our feet, but also how the planet ended up looking like it does today. And I say eventually evolve because the story goes that the lone genius, Alfred Wegener, who we've already shown not to be a lone genius, is ignored for 50 years. Or is he? <laughs> what is clear is that people don't really go for his presentation of continental drift. Not only was there big backlash, his scientific mentor, who's the meteorologist Vladimir Koppen, a guy who would also become his future father-in-law when Alfred actually marries his daughter, Elsa, Vladimir advises him to be cautious with the idea, to which Alfred replies, why should we hesitate to toss the old views overboard? A little bit of an awkward father-in-law confrontation there. But here's the thing also about Alfred is that he just drops his paper, his hypothesis about what happened, but says nothing about why. And then just like pieces off to Greenland for three years to be then just like, bye guys, we'll see you later. And that's very convenient because he's <laughs> been saying to all of these other guys, no, your idea is not right. No, your idea is not right. But he doesn't give one. So nobody can tell him he's wrong. Right. He comes back. He publishes his book in 1915. And still people are like, nah. And is that because, as the story goes, there is no mechanism? Well, let's ask Naomi. After plate tectonics was accepted in the United States in the 1960s, some geologists looked back and realized that Alfred Wegener had really proposed more or less the same idea back in the 1920s. And so a lot of geologists found themselves asking the question, well, well why didn't we accept the theory back in the 20s? And so they came up with an excuse that was frankly untrue, but it was what I was taught in school. They basically created a myth that continental drift was rejected because there was no mechanism to explain how the continents could move. So that was untrue because in fact, in Europe, where people were sympathetic to the theory, a number of people had got to work in trying to figure out what the mechanism could be. This is amazing. This is just like academics going in circles, kind of making up an idea about why something happened that wasn't true. Why do we ignore that guy for so and then, long? And then making up an idea about why that happened that mm. wasn't true. Mm. So, yes, he didn't give much of a mechanism, but that didn't lead people to reject and ignore his idea. Not in Europe, anyway. In Europe, they recognize that the argument against sunken continents is a valid and important one. And so they begin to realize that Wegener is right, that we need an alternative explanation. In fact, Wegener's idea of continental drift gets quite a lot of support, and not just in Europe. There were also advocates for the theory in South America and South Africa, in the places of the world that basically were Gondwana land, where the geological evidence is strongest. Incredible. Remember that name, Gondwana land, from of, earlier? From way back when. Edward Zeus is mm -hmm. what he called that um, supercontinent of South America, Africa, and India, back in his 1885 textbook. He didn't think that they'd been together and then drifted apart, but he thought they would be together in the sense of they'd been connected by land bridges. And so these people who are in the places that had been connected by this supercontinent are seeing the proof and are like, yeah, we buy, we buy it. Yeah, fellow geologists, fellow scientists, they can see those geological features and the fossils matching on, you know, opposite sides of the seas and oceans kind of where they live. So yeah, they kind of support him and try to work out a mechanism. But I'm just going to take a little a little segue, okay. if I can, because that name Gondwana land is actually still used today to describe one of our former supercontinents. And I say one of because there have actually been 
a few. This is so interesting. Gondwana land was one of two huge land masses. The other was called Laurasia oh. um, that broke off an even bigger supercontinent before that. One from 250 million years ago. It's got a name you might have heard of. That one's Pangaea. It's got to yes. be. Okay, yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, Pangaea comes, etymology again. Greek pan, meaning everything, mm-hmm. and Gia or Gaia, meaning earth. So technically it means the whole of earth or all lands. All in one smooshed ball of continent. The what did you call it earlier? The, oh, the plate big, tectonic the big, cookie? The big cookie. I don't know <laughs> I why that, that came to me. <laughs> Pangaea, coined by Alfred Wegener in the 1920s. Interesting. Wegener comes up with it. And just to finish my segue, bonkers, right? Bonkers this. All the continents weren't in just one big lump in Earth's history. Six times they've probably been in lumps. Uh, they've all got super cool names. And the continents are still moving. And it's thought that in another 250 million years or so, the continents will reunite in another single mass that it's been suggested is going to be called Pangaea Proxima. Yeah, I guess if like humans are still around in 250 million years, I I would quite like to see Pangaea Proxima, but I don't think I'm going to last another 250 million years, Greg. Hey, we'll see. We'll see. Tech is advancing. Um, Right, so let's get back to Alfred Wegener. Why did he not get much support in the United States? Especially if other scientists around the world are on board. In the United States, the reaction is quite different. And part of the reason the reaction is different is because Americans have never believed in the sunken continents theory. There was a different theory that had developed. So Wegener's basic argument that you have to come up with a new theory because your existing theory doesn't work, the Americans say, oh, but actually our existing theory does work. And so this tells us something really important about science. And I talk about this in my book, The Rejection of Continental Drift. Scientists tend to pay most attention to their own evidence. Classic America. Just off living in their own bubble. So Alfred's idea doesn't fly in the US until, as Naomi said earlier, plate tectonics is accepted. And they realise... sixties. Yeah. And they realise essentially that's an evolution of Alfred Wegener's idea. So what did the Americans believe instead of land bridge thing? They call it geosyncline theory. But again, oh, not going to go into it. Could, we'll just put that in the bank with those other words yep, that we perfect, can look up perfect. at a later date. Um, in Europe, supporters are working really hard to provide this kind of this missing mechanism for what drove this separation of the continents. Alfred Wegener had no idea about what happens underneath the water. He considered the continents to plow through the Earth's mantle. The mantle, that's like this liquid molten rock layer of the earth that's right although at the moment they think the earth is just solid oh okay but now we know yeah if we think of the earth as a peach or a plum then uh, on the outside you've got the skin that's the earth's crust a very thin layer that's us in the middle you've got the stone right that's the earth's core and then all the stuff in between is the mantle squishy the proportions of that analogy don't really work but whatever Alfred Wegener talked about the continents sailing through the mantle. Which he thought was solid at the time. Right. Bizarre. Yeah. So how could it do that? Right. Two people help Alfred Wegener out with a suggestion. The first guy is John Jolie in Ireland. Um, He's working on something called radioactive heat. The idea that there are minerals in the earth that are radioactive and that that produces heat. And that could melt rock. And then maybe the continents could move through that as Wegener suggests. Oh, like the inside of the Earth is a space heater melting the rest of it so that the crust can slide around on top. 
Possibly, yeah. Uh -huh. Now there's also Arthur Holmes. Arthur Holmes takes that idea and he goes one step further and he says, if you're generating radioactive heat, that could actually generate convection currents. Parts of the mantle could actually physically rise and then they could spread out and that spreading of the hot mantle could actually drag the continents along. Convection currents may be a, a vague recollection from school. I have seen this in my textbook, right. for sure. It's essentially the idea that hot stuff rises and cold stuff sinks, and that that can form a kind of a circular-ish flow. Almost like a conveyor belt like you would have at the grocery store. Spot on, yeah, yeah. Cool. Now, Arthur Holmes suggests that if there is molten mantle, the hot bits could rise up and the cool bits could sink down and it could form that convection current in it and that could actually carry the continents along. Like your groceries towards the checkout. Loving this. <laughs> there's Arthur Holmes, but even more so there's John Perry who published even the mathematics of convection. Again, I read that this idea of a soft mantle and convection currents didn't get much attention and indeed it won't catch on until the 1960s because more evidence is needed to displace this common view that the mantle is fixed and solid. Okay? okay, fair enough. What I respect about Alfred Wegener, though, is that he takes the criticisms on board, he refines his ideas, he keeps publishing updated versions of his book, and he does credit other people in them. So he actually mentions Roberto Mangavani, right, oh, nice. his earlier ideas. And he does a lot of that while he's at the University of Graz, which is where Kurt is now a professor. He was a professor in the meteorology department. I can see his office actually out my office window here across campus. I looked directly into the window that was his office in the physics building here across campus. God, that is so cool. It just makes my brain feel so happy when we have this intersection from our historical story and today and we're like talking to the guy who can look into Wagner's office. And Kurt and Alfred, they share something else as well. They share this love of adventure. In fact, to round out Alfred Wagner's story, sadly, it's that love of adventure that leads to his death oh, on no. his fourth Greenland expedition. After terrible weather and food shortages, Alfred takes it upon himself to head out to fetch some much needed supplies. I read that it took him five weeks oh to get to the God. station where the supplies were. Absolute nightmare. He was facing temperatures of minus 54 degrees C. Um, he reaches the supply station. He decides to set straight back out for base camp where he started from like the next morning, but he never makes it. Yeah, that's 10 weeks, dude. Oh, God. He dies on the ice um, oh. a day or two after his 50th birthday. And the German government want to bring him back. But his wife says, leave him there. It's where he would want to be. Oh, she knows him. Kurt actually organised and went on a memorial expedition to Greenland and discovered Alfred's sled. Holy crap. That's creepy and also awesome. Back to the final verse of this tale then, uh, to the birth of plate tectonics. And for that, we actually need to turn to the States, which is strange. Because they were off in their own bubble doing their own thing for quite a while and are the reason that this hasn't caught on so far. But there are a few people there who are still thinking about it, including one Harry Hess. Now, I don't actually want to focus too much on him. I want to focus more on the man that he collaborates with because he appears to bring a little bit more to this. A Dutch geodesist a man by the name of Felix Venning Mainz. And he definitely has not got the credit that he deserves, but maybe we can help him get a little more credit now. Oh, I love this. I love this. I love this. I love when we can do this on the podcast. Okay, Felix. Felix Venning Mainz. Cool. Between 1923 and 1929, uh, he does a bunch of research in Indonesia. He squeezes his tall body into a small submarine. He dives into the ocean and is measuring the strength of the gravitational pull. He does a set of gravity measurements that show that there's a big gravity anomaly, a negative gravity anomaly. That is to say, gravity is less 
over the Java Trench than it is everywhere else in the world. And that's really weird. So why would the gravity be less in this place? So he begins to hypothesize that there's some kind of continental displacement where maybe a piece of the continent is actually being bent downwards. That is so wild. And this is in the 1920s. Mm. He's crammed into a submarine measuring the gravitational fields deep below the surface of the ocean. And he publishes on this. Uh, and some American geologists read it and they decide to invite him over to the States in 1932. They arrange with the US Navy to invite him and they get the Navy to let him borrow a submarine. The good old days. Just a cash submarine landing. Have this for a bit. They get the submarine and they go to the Caribbean. But Venning Minitz needs someone to help him. And so these senior scientists say, well, there's this smart young guy at Princeton who's just finishing his PhD. Why don't we send him? And that's Harry Hess. Long story short, in 1932, together they measure these gravity anomalies. And based on Arthur Holmes's work, actually, they think they finally found the data needed to show that, yes, convection currents can drag parts of the continent along and down. Using gravitational data. Yeah, yeah. And they're about to yell this from the rooftops. And then... World War II breaks out. Oh, crap. Venning Minus joins the Dutch resistance. Hess becomes a lieutenant in the US Navy. And for the next six years, they're doing classified work that they can't talk about. After the war, they both want to start talking about it again, right? Because they're excited about it. I'm so glad they made it through. But all that data has been classified. And you can read a lot more about this in Naomi's new book, which is called Science on a Mission. And so my new book, I argue that actually the Navy stood in the way of the development of plate tectonics, that this whole conversation that had been going on comes to a complete halt because the Navy now classifies all the data from the oceans and Hess can't talk about it. And we know that Hess was troubled by it because he then spends the next 15 years trying to get the data declassified. So Harry and Felix gravitational dream team muzzled by government bureaucracy. Yeah, no! for a very, very long time. And eventually, it's the late 50s, a totally different group of geologists in Britain at Imperial College in London. Hey! Well, we both studied for our masters, didn't we? Yep. But in different years. <laughs> um, they use terrestrial data, data that isn't classified, and they show just what Felix and Harry had discovered oh, that there are giant ridges and fracture zones under the water. Something that suggests that there's a lot more going on down there, right? The mantle isn't solid and fixed. Finally. And that makes Alfred Wegener's ideas of continental movement more feasible. And that is why people say that in the 1960s, they look back on Wegener's 1920s work and realized he was right all along. Getting derailed by American intellectual individualism and just a casual world war along the way. Yeah. So that data essentially that the other team in Britain are doing and that Felix and Harry had got but didn't have access to, that shows essentially that Arthur Holmes was right. Yeah, that the convection currents happen. And that shows that John Jolie was right, right? <laughs> that, the, that it's all melted. And that shows that Alfred Wegener was right, that the continents do move, but he didn't have a mechanism. And it took us decades of data collection and ideas building on ideas to finally get to our modern, correct understanding of how it all works. So Alfred Wegener was talking about continental drift because he saw the mantle as static and the continents ploughing through the mantle, right, mm. drifting. Um, but plate tectonics.
tectonics is this realisation that actually the mantle is molten and moving and the continents just go along for the ride, Ah. essentially floating on top, right? Catch my drift. Oh, my God, Greg. Okay, you got... I suddenly thought, hang on, this is a pun I should You got me one back here. (laughs) (laughs) 3-1, Mary and Greg. Right, I asked Kurt when he considered plate tectonics to become a thing. One of the papers that I always consider the start of plate tectonics was published by Menard in 1964 with the first global bathymetric map. So a map of the water depth of the oceans was published. And on that map, people all of a sudden discovered the mid-oceanic ridges and the subduction zones. And that was really the kickoff of plate tectonics. And in the decade after 1964 is where all the significant papers describing plate tectonics were published. I mean, literally discovering this whole submerged world just ready to be explored. And it's plate tectonics that revolutionizes the way that we see the world. I think that plate tectonics is, you know, the unifying theory of Earth science, but it wasn't just one person who developed it. Well said. I love that, the unifying theory of Earth science, because we're looking for a unifying theory in physics, right? We have something like that in biology with the theory of evolution, natural selection. So funny. And I think it's fair to say that this idea of Alfred Wegener as a lone genius, that's inaccurate. Well and thoroughly debunked by this episode. Wegener was a very good scientist. He was very smart. I have huge respect and admiration for what he did. But, you know, we've got John Jolie, we've got Arthur Holmes. There's a lot of people working on this problem at the time. And then he's not ignored. I mean, there's a big discussion about his theory. He was recognized. His theory was discussed, but people didn't accept it. And that was sad for him. But again, as his biographer says, not that sad because he did believe in the progress of science. And he believed that in time he would be proved right which indeed he largely was. I love that. That harkens back to our very first introduction to Wegener when he was described by his colleague as that guy who like, in a couple of days, we usually figured out Alfred was right. It's just this, but on a decadal scale. You're so right. Yeah. (laughs) And Kurt commented on this as well. He was just in the middle of a growing understanding that had developed starting in the, say, 1870s and finished in 1968. And Alfred Wegener was just in the middle of that. And when you think about it, I'm sure it's easy from where we stand today to say, oh, he was right and we should have known it and he was ignored. But really, it was just scientific process, the scientific method taking place. We needed the support. We needed the evidence. Yeah, we needed the data. Yeah, and we didn't have it. Exactly. I wanted to end with a paragraph from the final version of his book. Which he keeps updating throughout his entire life. Yeah, and and he actually publishes uh, this final version the year before his death. And it has this paragraph that I particularly like. It talks about not just the need to bring various expertise together to solve a problem, but he also talks about the nature of truth in science. Here you go, I'll give this to you to read. So this is Wegener. All Earth sciences must contribute evidence toward unveiling the state of our planet in earlier times, and that the truth of the matter can only be reached by combining all this evidence. It is only by combining the information furnished by all the Earth sciences that we can hope to determine truth here. That is to say, to find the picture that sets out all the known facts in the best arrangement and that therefore has the highest degree of probability. Further, we have to be prepared always for the possibility that each new discovery, no matter what science furnishes it, may modify the conclusions we draw. How beautifully put. I mean, he just describes the whole ethos of science and coming to conclusions so beautifully right there. Just like the continents continue (laughs) to drift and their shapes continue to change, so too must our understanding of the world. It is not fixed. It is not static. 
and the best way to solve its puzzles is to bring all the disciplines together. Oh my God, that's wild. I love how you brought it all together and brought us home like that, Greg. This has been a, such a cool journey because I feel like this is something we often just take for granted when we learn it in high school or wherever. But really, this, this was very recent realization and so long in the making, centuries. Absolute pleasure. Complicated one, this one. But yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. You did great. It is time, therefore, to say our thank yous and our goodbyes. Uh, today's experts were Professor of the History of Science and the Affiliated Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at Harvard University, Professor Naomi Oreskes, and the Professor for Geology at the University of Graz, Professor Kurt Stewart. Great to chat to you both. Thank you so, so much. And if you enjoyed listening to this podcast episode as much as I did, then please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And let a friend know about the podcast. Spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone who you think may enjoy this episode. More episodes are on the way, so subscribe to catch them. And if you've got a story from science history you'd like us to tell, or a discovery or an invention you'd like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com. And if you want to get in touch with us on social media, our brilliant host today was Greg Foote. He's at Greg Foote on both Instagram and Twitter. And this here is Marin Hunsberger. She goes by at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter, at Marin B on Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Marin Hunsberger, and our producer was Katerina Kropschoffer. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger, and we had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu. And from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatikadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at Seeker.com. We'll chat to you next time. Bye.